Hey, listeners, just a heads up that throughout this episode, we will be talking about themes of suicide and death and some heavy existential questions. If that is not comfortable for you to listen to, feel free to join us next time for the episode that comes after this. But we hope you all have a wonderful day and thank you for being here. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of Ultra Hope Girls, a Danganronpa podcast. We are so, so excited to begin this incredible analysis of the last chapter of Goodbye Despair. It is crazy that we are here. Just so you know, this episode will spoil the entirety of Goodbye Despair. We are so excited to get started. And yeah. I'm Maddie. I'm Marin. And I'm Caroline. And we're the Ultra Hope Girls. Welcome to the Danganronpa Podcast. You're on the threshold of an amazing episode. Showtime. So this is the episode where we discover that Hajime is Izuru Kamakura, who basically helped Junko destroy the world, and Makoto and all his buddies come back to try and save them. In the virtual world. In the virtual world. In the virtual a, world. That was a great um, explanation, bro. I gotta Thank say, you. I was wondering how you were going to do that <laughs> because there's a lot of a lot of layers going on. In yeah, where do you start? Yeah, because I mean, you could just sit here for like, I mean, how long does it take to play chapter six and explain everything that's happening? <laughs> <laughs> right. So we start off with chapter zero, which happens, we assume, before any of the kids get to the island. Um, and you see Nagito on this boat. There is this horrible boat noise happening the God, entire noise. time. It was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and he's talking to someone from Hope's Peak who possesses luck, is loved by talent, and hasn't been seen before by Nagito. And so, like, when I first played it, I was like, oh, man, like this is who Monokuma has been waiting for this whole time. Like, so exciting. Um, you know, and we, we later find out that's not true. But yeah, what'd you guys think of that scene? I have two notes. One is Nagito in a ship with Junko's hand, period. Izuru, com- Izuru, which we know now is that person, commenting on how boring Nagito is. And I, I think that that just kind of sums up like how... In this game, the only characterization we really get of Izuru Kamakura is what happened to him and the scene where he's commenting on how boring Nagito is, which I think says a lot about his character that he's saying Nagito is boring because Nagito (laughs) is the opposite of boring. Yeah. yeah, And then my other note was I had this sort of idea formulating in my head about how Junko's limbs being attached to various like people of the remnants of despair were sort of like a twisted way of like the body of christ like physically being attached to her followers oh my goodness yeah i know that's like very disturbing dark (laughs) but yeah yeah, it's that i just it made me think of that like in a very twisted 
wrong way, right? Because the body of Christ is in Christianity, a very positive like no notion and idea. I didn't have any really like notes on that scene, but um, it is fitting, I think, that Nagito has transplanted his arm with Junko's because he has said that he is willing to become the embodiment of despair in order, or the embodiment of hope. He wants to become the embodiment of hope, but he's willing to become the embodiment of despair to be a stepping stone to hope. And he literally is turning his body into ultimate despair. Just as a fun nurse Marin fact, uh, I looked up their blood types to see, you know, if they had the same ones to make it even physically possible for this, you know, transfer to happen. They don't have the same blood types. In fact, Nagito has type O blood, which is the universal donor. So he can give out blood pretty easily. Junko is AB, meaning if she's AB positive, she has the least likely ability to transfer and so it's just kind of interesting to me that Junko like she didn't give out her body parts necessarily but people taking them like it's still there's still like a little bit of like medical despair there and that like it wouldn't really have worked like it's like yeah it's very interesting yeah his body would completely reject it yeah right like no (laughs) bueno wow and the fact that Nagito is the universal donor that is just the cherry on top of his luck situation oh my gosh absolutely yeah yeah but it's also because so he has the lymphoma thing that we talked about in our character analysis too right so he's the universal donor but he can't donate his blood because right but also if you're if you're type o you can only receive o so you it's more restrictive for the types of blood that you can receive and um yeah the world is not fair those a b people they can take blood from anyone but they um, can't really give it out but the type o people they give and they give and they give but they can only <laughs> they take back so me. much life ain't fair the only other thing that i had from the boat scene is uh izuru comments and says that the world has stopped evolving and i wrote that down as kind of like a question prompt um i mean i have my own response to it about like has the world stopped evolving because it's it feels a little bit like it's slowed because of modern medicine and technology. Like a lot of people are living longer than they would used to with the same conditions. However, I personally would argue that it's the same. Like evolution doesn't have a goal. It's not trying to get rid of a certain number of people. It's it's different, sure, but it's still happening. Um, and so I actually really disagreed with him here. It was yeah and also evolution isn't something that you see in in one lifetime it's something you see over 500 or or a thousand years like so it's just a weird statement to come from someone who's supposed to like know a lot about that right i think that one since he possesses all talent he nothing he knows all in a way so it nothing would be developing or interesting to him because in his mind, he already knows everything, or at least he thinks he does. But to your point of us just chatting here, like has society stopped evolving? I disagree. And I also go to the other extreme. Our development right now is exponentially higher, at least technologically than it has ever been ever period. And so that alone, I'm like, no way. Maybe it seems like it's stagnant because now we have these devices that we know how to use and use well, but the development is far beyond anything still, even though to us it might seem like, oh yeah, it's just like a new word processor. Like a lot of work went into that, a lot of science went into that <laughs> or whatever. So yeah. 
Yeah, I, I don't think I agree that the world has stopped evolving. I think we are, you know, at least like I, like Caroline said, with scientific developments and whatnot, I mean, it, it's like exponential growth there. I feel that. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times when people think of evolution, they think of like, oh, someone's going to sprout a tail. No, like that, that's not really in the real world what that is. I mean, maybe people will have tails in 10,000 years, but you're not going to wake up tomorrow with one. And so like, yeah, I think it's a very interesting view for sure. My first note to say um, that it is a little blast from the past. We are back in Hope's Peak Academy. Obviously, since this was the first Dong and Rampa game I played, it was like, go to the gym for the entrance exam. And I was like, where is the gym? Um, <laughs> but at some point, at, at this one point, Monokuma says, um, when you're like in the gym, he says, I'm sure someone is feeling nostalgic right now. And it's funny because it's like probably supposed to refer to us. But I was just like, what? <laughs> I wanted to comment on that because so I watched the anime and I didn't play the game. So when we got to Hope's Peak, I was literally like, where are we right now? <laughs> I had no idea. Also, my the first time I played this game, honestly, this last chapter, I did not register a lot of information because I got so bored. And we can talk about that later with just the plot dump at the end that I had no idea what was going on because I my brain was like, ah, this is boring. Like, click, click, click. Anyway, that's another combo. But I, yeah. I was like, where are we? <laughs> <laughs> Um, on the way to the gym, I went around after in chapter five, when Maddie, you told us that if you click on the doors of the people, it shares their last thoughts. I was like, I have to click on everything this chapter. I was like, no secrets will be kept from me. So I went around to every door. Um, and on the AV room, there's an Egyptian eye, um, like a, a hieroglyph of an eye. And so I did a little research. Um, and this is from Wikipedia. So maybe take it with a grain of salt. But um, the symbol on the door is the Eye of Horus, and Horus was the ancient Egyptian sky god who was like normally depicted as a falcon, and like his right eye was associated with Ra, and his left eye was sometimes represented by the moon, um, but it was believed that the eye had the ability to cast evil spells, um, and there is this one myth where he loses one of his eyes, and then he finds it, and he gives it to a different god, and it is. It symbolizes sacrifice, healing, restoration, and protection. The left eye does. Well, the one on the door is the right eye, which is the one that symbolizes evil and casting spells and like kind of ruin. So it was just kind of interesting that like at first I was like, ooh, a protection spell. And then it was like, nope, evil. So a connection to that is um, in the Chumbiu trope, which we've talked about, Gundam sort of fits the Chumbiu trope. They have an eye and I, almost all of them, I think it's the right eye. I would need to look up a picture, but I think it's almost always the right eye. And that is a very, it stands for something very similar. Like their power comes from that eye. Like in the anime Chumbiu, the girl has a patch over it. And when she takes it off, it's like golden and it shines. And it's like the eye of power or whatever, because, you know, they think of very all cool. wild things. But yeah, that's like a neat like connection to that too. Um, so when Monokuma is like talking to them and explaining what they are about to do, like go and find the information, he says, are your minds getting the grumblies that only knowledge can satisfy? And I am very convinced that that is a reference to the YouTube video Llamas with Hats, where oh my God. one of the, yeah, where one of the llamas says, my tumby was making the rumblies that only hands can satisfy. <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> 
Carl. Oh my God. That kills I, people. I haven't thought about that video in years. Like, oh my God. Oh my God. I swear. I wouldn't be surprised in one bit if they were referencing that because this game is famous for that. True. Oh, and that video oh came out in 2010. So right. the timing works. Yeah. <laughs> There's a llamas with hats reference in Dong and Rumba. I can't. I can't. Wow. Mm. My life is forever changed. I, I have some notes about just like exploring the school and whatnot. And yeah, and my first note about it is like when you're walking around and stuff is like glitching and changing. Um, I it, it feels very much like a dream where it's like stuff just changes. You walk in one door and then you walk out the other, but you're not in the same place as you were. Um, it's very dreamlike, but at the same time, there's kind of the vibe that like, like when you're in a dream, you kind of just accept it. Because Hajime at some points is like, wait, this is weird. But he doesn't react as strongly as like, I feel like he should. He's like, he will literally <laughs> see like a door glitch in front of him and like all this stuff and will be like, huh, that's a little strange. Wonder what that was. <laughs> and so <laughs> it just made me think of that like, when you're dreaming and, and all this weird stuff is happening and you're just like, oh yeah, this is fine. Um, and then you come back to reality and you're like, what the hell was that? Very true. I have another very small note and it is in the dojo when, yes, Marin has the same note. <laughs> I think. <laughs> we get real meta. Um, when you look at the, like, the bullseye on the wall, Hajime says, wow, that target is really far away. If the production team had had more time, they could have put a mini game here wait, what am I saying? <laughs> it's like, oh, it just gets so meta. It was hilarious. They really play with us the entire exploration time. In the uh, game room, um, They, if you click on Sakura's, the chair that Sakura dies in, it says, wow, that looks like a really comfy place to sleep. And I was oh like, too oh. soon. Oh, oh my God. Wow. Okay. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, I could talk a little bit about the um, uh, the books. Yeah. Books we find. But actually, here's the gag. I only have, like, two notes about them. I, I couldn't find a whole, t- a whole lot about, like, the art or, like, you know, the art styles are obviously different and they represent, like, different eras of, like, creation and stuff. But um, two things. One, manga for morons. Obviously a reference to the Four Dummy books, which I thought was silly and very funny (laughs) and then the other thing that i noticed is the art on the biggest most awful most tragic event in human history is i think i mean i i would be surprised if it's not it's a probably a direct reference to one the screen painting but two the woman from psycho in the shower and i really i think that it makes sense that this book is that is the cover art for it because that scene, one, there was never a scene done like that in cinematic history, and it changed the face of like horror and psychological thriller. And two, that scene in the movie Psycho changes the course of the entire film and the entire plot of, of the movie in a way that this event, the most tragic event in human history, changed the history of the future of the world. And so I thought that was a very appropriate image to have as the cover for uh, those books. But, for sure yeah definitely 
Great reference, yeah. Okay, so the very first manga you find is the History of Hope's Peak Academy, um, and you learn that they're using the re reserve department to get money to like to research talent, which I think we already knew before this chapter. Um, but you learn in this manga that they wanted to create a true genius who would become mankind's hope, and I wasn't too sure about the idea of that, like just the general research plan, because like I have a lot of kind of bigger questions that I, I wanted to get your guys' take on, but like I, I'm not convinced that you can make someone hope, that you can present a person and say, okay, be hopeful. Look, we, we made someone, you know, like, and both Nagito and Izuru at different times talk about how when people see talent, when people see people achieving things, they like to drag them down. To their own level they feel uncomfortable with other people's success so i think this plan was like kind of going to fail from the beginning to create someone with so much talent so much like potential and then present it to the people like you should be really proud of them i just yeah so i wanted to hear what you guys think yeah i had a similar note um along those lines i was kind of thinking to myself like why like why was that their strategy because the biggest question i have that i don't really understand is why they equate talent with hope so strongly because they're like as a school in general but also with izuro kamakura specifically they're like oh if we make him the most talented man ever he will become the world's hope and it's like why does talent equate to hope i mean this could even be a broader conversation of like does humanity place their value in the wrong things? Because I think as a society, if you reflect on the way we live, we place a lot of merit on talent. 100%. We, you know, parents who have two kids and one is like Harvard bound and the other one like goes to the community college for a very valid education and probably will go on to do something great uh, hides that most of the time. And they look at the person who is going to Harvard. And so I think that, this is almost like we are looking at this and we're like, man, like, I can't believe that someone would like try to like equate this much talent to one person or like that we value talent so highly. But I think it's a true reflection of the extremes of our society. And so I think like Hope Speak itself is a very twisted like honor school that like people get into and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So maybe it's a, a more of a, a question of like, is humanity valuing the wrong thing i think yes and i know that uh, i'm sure I, I hope in a way you guys probably agree with me you know but like yeah i think humanity values the wrong things and this was doomed to fail because valuing something that like talent is like futile because if you're talented in ballet your body is going to break one day you will not be able to do that forever and putting your whole identity in that is it's fickle. It's going to sink. It's going to break. So kind of adding on that, like, yeah, I totally see that with society and like maybe where we're placing our praise. But also I think that in modern day, it's a very like cutthroat. If I'm not the top, I'm not doing well. And so it can be very challenging to support people around you. Like, um, yeah, I think even sometimes like when your friends succeed, people feel jealousy and it's like that, like, it's there and it's present, but like it, it's not a good thing. I think as a society, we need to think about like if someone succeeds, if it's a success that helps everyone, it's not bad. And like maybe it'll drive you to try and achieve more. But like, yeah, I think the the way that we view those things are pretty negative. 
I agree that society values the wrong things a lot of the time. And I also agree, I think, with what you initially said, Marin, about how their Izurakama Kura plan was probably doomed to fail from the start. Because, I mean, if you think about it, like, if you're putting all of your faith into one individual person, like, this person is the world's hope. The entire world depends on this one individual being hope. Like, the second that one person does something wrong, that all shatters, and the world is ruined, and that's pretty much what happened. Like, Izurakama Kura turned to despair, and the world ended. Not ended, but, you know, (laughs) the biggest, most awful, most tragic event in human history, and I think that's just, you know, kind of the moral of the story is, like, don't don't put all your faith in one person, you know? It's almost like celebrity worship, where some Mm. people forget you know, some people who idolize a certain celebrity so much will eventually find out about like maybe something that that person did wrong and they'll be, they'll feel crushed by that because they just put so much, they put that person up on a pedestal so high that they came crashing down. In one of my lectures for nursing, we talk about um, management versus leadership and the differences between the two. Um, And management is someone who is in a position to lead. They have power over things, you know, like a manager can fire you. A leader is someone that inspires people and they, they kind of gauge the feelings of the group and they might bring those ideas to the manager. But leaders are the people who change things. Like you, you should want to be a leader. You can want to be a manager, but like they're viewed very differently. A leader is very positive and a manager is pretty usually negative. Um, and I think that they put Izuru Kamakura in a management position where they had a leader, Makoto, on standby already. And so like when they made Izuru, of course, Makoto wasn't the ultimate hope at the time, but like, it's very interesting how the two serve very different purposes in motivating people towards hope. Yeah. And also on that, being a manager doesn't necessarily mean you have leadership, but you can have both. Where like Izuru like was a manager but didn't have leadership and Makoto has leadership but wasn't given the management. Right. He he ch- took it on his own. Yes, a yeah. million percent. Yeah, that's perfect. So the next note I have is about something Monokuma says about the tragedy. I think is when this is the second manga we find. I think that's about the tragedy. And Monokuma says, he's talking about, oh, the world got so messed up. People just wanted despair. People craved despair. And he said, deaths became so common that people would watch them while eating their dinner, like on the news. And part of me was kind of like, I, I know that I think the intention behind that was to like, take that to a higher extreme with like post-despair society but part of me is also like isn't that kind of already a thing like have you ever watched the news while eating dinner and like people die on the news like all the time true chapter six is a commentary on society (laughs) a little bit I think a little bit because I think the idea of like the world wants despair like that idea is brought up a few times I think it's brought up again towards the end when Junko says like the reason I was born was like, if someone like me is born, that means the world like was craving despair. And like, I think there's a part of humanity that gets a kick out of those things. So we find out then um, in the biggest, most awful, most tragic event manga that um, almost 2,400 students in the reserve course um, committed suicide. And that was probably the most 
shocking thing in the game to me. I mean, obviously, other than Hajime is Izuru, I, I didn't see that coming. Um, but like that sh- kind of shook me in my core. Like I, that is a, a level. Like I didn't know what the biggest, most tragic, most awful event was because in the first game they kind of imply that it's like, is it killing game? Is it that you know like there's destruction on one of the floors like it's like what what is the event and this is a huge huge part of the you know biggest most awful most tragic event and yeah i it really hurt i have a very interesting commentary on this and also relating to like junko and ultimate despair and just in general is so this mass suicide has precedence in history um and i have two events to chat about today so um, first of all, I want to talk about how Junko and Ultimate Despair and this whole shenanigans is a cult. It's a freaking cult. Let's just let's just call it what it is, folks. Yes, exactly. um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so a cult, just so like for folks who may not know, a cult is a movement with a shared commitment uh, to a shared ideology that is usually embodied by a charismatic leader seeking power, money, love, all three, two, despair, despair, <laughs> um, and the, the remnants of despair and also like literally everyone who follows Junko fits this um id this like description um Absolutely. so two events i just want to chat about um one is so back in the night in 1955 this is often known as like the first like um big cult like in america um jim jones is the founder and i can't remember the, i don't remember the name so if maddie you know the name you can shout it out um i have a note about the it's the jonestown Mass yeah, suicide, that's, so I'm pretty yeah. sure that's the same thing. Yeah. They uh he founded a group and they built a following and then in the late 70s, so that's like 20 years after this group was founded, they uh flew to I don't know if it was like an island or like somewhere and they built Jonestown, which was a prison camp that everyone lived in. And then the government was like, This is sus, let's check this out. And so the government started like sort of trying to investigate, and then the leader convinced basically all of the people. 909 men women and children um to drink like poisoned fruit punch or something like that and uh they all died and so the other instance that i have here and this was for some reason the uh, this first one was like some articles called it suicide some called it like this person forced them to do this thing so it like is kind of blurred on whether like where it falls so the second one is almost always like ruled all of them it's a suicide this is uh heaven's gate which is an american ufo based religious cult which was a lot of words and a lot of my brain was like oh okay um and they in 1997 similarly um they all committed mass suicide and i believe it was like something about like a ritual like they all were gonna do it for this one event and so they all of free will chose to do it it wasn't like someone like forcing them so yeah I had similar notes actually my my note was just about Jonestown but um that like yeah over 900 people is just insane it's just like I'm pretty sure that is the largest mass suicide in history and that's also where the expression um drinking the kool-aid comes from (laughs) um it's horrible but this is a part of the game that I think I was it Marin was it you who said that it was about like the number of like the 2,400 or so reserve horse students, like doing that, that number is like the most shocking thing in this game. Like I agree. And I think 
like part of the reason that part of the game gets to me so much is because we talk a lot throughout this game about like an anime and stuff about how we need to suspend our disbelief but there are times when we don't have to because these things are like Caroline said they're based in real historical events and that's like scary that's even scarier when you don't have to suspend your disbelief because you're like wow this actually has happened before this is possible like all of the things that they said that the remnants of despair did like the list when they were like oh they like replaced an eyeball they like did all these things i won't list because it's very disturbing but like i i was like yeah yep that's disturbing oh god oh my god but like i believed all of it i believe that would happen today which is (laughs) horrifying yeah anyway oh i have a note from the game room so mine's just kind of random, but um, in the game room, there is a game of Go happening on the table. And so I like studied the board a little bit and I did a little bit of research on on Go strategies. And that board is like almost, not perfectly, but it's in a stalemate um, where they are. No piece could get captured in a move. Um, and so it, it kind of represented to me like the fight between Junko and the kids because like at that point... It, it could really go both ways. I mean, she clearly thought that she was in the lead, but like what one person thinks in, in a war, if you will, does not, you know, actually represent what's happening. And so I thought it was really cool. It was like a, a nice representation of the bigger conflict. Yeah. Cool little detail there. My next note is about one of the like emails that we find hovering in midair that Hajime just seems totally fine with. Um, right. Of course. <laughs> It is that we get confirmation that Makoto and the survivors of the first killing game got their memories back. I know. I have that as a note, too. Yeah. I did a little cheer when I saw that. (laughs) Where was Hina and Hiro, by the way? Yeah, literally. Can we talk about that? And Toko. Where's Toko? Yeah, and Toko. Toko wouldn't show up. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I am kidding. (laughs) But yeah, Hina and Hiro, they just like didn't feel like it. They're like, Byakuya, Kyoko, you got this. Yeah, if two, if the other three had come, then it was a majority vote, right, to end the game. And so they had to get everyone to vote because they were eight. They needed eight to get the majority of 15. Well, if the other three had come, it probably would have been a lot easier to get like Sonia, Kazuichi, you know, like the people who were not Hajime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. of course, I'm not complaining. It was a, a nice, warm ending. But, like, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> My next note is about the Nia World Program. Oh, I have a lot to say about that. So, one is a question, um, and the other is sort of like, it's just a topic to bring up. So, okay. So, I'll, let's pose the question first. So, there's a lot of pop culture that touches on this idea of like a human being being able to enter a virtual world. There's Avatar, there's Ready Player One, there's a million things. Um, And I just wanted to get y'all's like input on how you felt this interpretation of this sort of sci-fi reality like is similar to past pop culture iterations or very different and how it, it does what it does differently. Um, from other pop culture iterations. I have not seen or read Ready Player One, so I don't, I cannot speak to that one, like, personally. It, um, it made me think of The Matrix, like, the, at the end, like, the blue pill versus red pill problem. Yeah. That's what it made me think of. I think that 
it's interesting to think about how this world I I, I'm only thinking of Avatar and the Matrix here but like they probably won't keep their memories of this world that they're in whereas Avatar like they go in the bodies and they're like running through the woods and then they remember after whereas this it's like its own bubble of like an existence that is obliterated and doesn't exist anymore after they leave um which i think is interesting and very different i'm trying to like gather my thoughts because like i i love neo world programs and other media that i do enjoy like stories about that avatar great movie they're coming out with a second one fun fact oh my god but- really <laughs> why <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <But> weird <laughs> i think what I like about this Neo World program versus the other ones is they really put forward a purpose to why it's there. Whereas, you know, Ready Player One, I have seen the movie. It It's because they're kind of unhappy with their day-to-day lives. Like life is pretty crappy, so they escape into the game. And then Avatar, it's like to connect with this other like um, group of people, you know, that they didn't think they could meet in their normal bodies i i kind of like this explanation a little bit more it it makes a lot of sense to me to try and like you know give these characters therapy (laughs) oh well (laughs) they probably need it um yeah so i i think i like the explanation behind it and i like the way that they respected that if you die in the game you die in real life you know like that kind of vibe because I think if you create a a different avatar of yourself and you say, okay, it has all the same traits, you should consider it a human. If that avatar dies, we're going to mourn it. Then I think it's kind of important to stick by that. But Maddie, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on like this sort of method being used as a therapy. Yes. I do have notes about that. Um, because it is very interesting Nowadays, um, virtual reality is actually becoming more of a thing in some forms of psychotherapy, and it is nowhere near as involved as like uploading someone's brain into the cloud and being like, we're going to undo the brainwashing. Like, y- y- we-, we ain't there yet. But virtual reality therapy can be used for people with like um, PTSD, agoraphobia, various kinds of phobias, that kind of thing as a way to like expose them to a virtual version of something that scares them so that they can kind of be desensitized to it and learn to like confront it in a safe way. Um, Like for instance, if someone is afraid of heights and they want to get over their fear of heights because they're maybe they're so, so cripplingly afraid of heights that they can't walk upstairs. A good way to maybe tackle that would be to use like a VR headset or something that makes them look like they're like standing on a balcony or like climbing a mountain or something because that's safer than actually having them climb a mountain um and it can help them to like get used to that so it's actually pretty neat but the other thing is that it does talk about how the neo world program in the game can erase traumatic memories and replace them and um that brings up a whole lot of ethical concerns about, you know, should we just, like, if people have traumatic memories, is it right to just get rid of them? Um, I don't know if I believe that that is ethical, um, but I did actually talk kind of a little bit about that in my first bonus episode, my Ultimate Psych episode about amnesia and kind of the implications of, of if that technology were ever available, which it is not currently. This is probably a good time to bring up this little tidbit. So, 
I have mentioned in I think literally every chapter analysis episode in this season that I am taking a class about afterlife in my college career right now. And we have been talking about afterlife in science and a big conversation when talking about like, you know, biology mixing with computer technology is the idea of transhumanism, which is literally, I just defined it as merging biology and technology. And this is something that is a philosophical debate on the transhumanist, like, ideals like they stand on a pedestal of like opinions and philosophies that not everyone agrees with so i'm i'm just going to read these like very objectively like this is what transhumanism and people who like believe in this like believe and and base their lives on so their core philosophy is that the functioning human brain is identical to a highly functioning computer essentially and two of the earlier founders with the last names Church and Turing, they basically came up with a thesis that founding this whole philosophical thing that is that they're fundamentally equal. Like a high functioning computer is equal to a human brain if it's high enough that you can't tell the difference of which is human and which is like a computer. And that thus created the Turing test, which is if you can't distinguish IT from human, they should be treated as human. The IT should be treated as human, which I thought was really interesting when talking about our little girl, Chiaki Oliver. Um, <laughs> but the biggest thing about transhumanism is it brings up a lot of questions about human identity in the era of technology. And if humans can create computers as intelligent as us, what is humanity? A lot of transhumanists believe that the computer AI version of you is you. Like if you replace parts of your brain, that are dying and being replaced and replace it with a computer with like the same capability function and memory that is still you even if the entire brain is replaced which is crazy and wild and like there's a hot debate <laughs> like that as like a, philosoph- a philosophical ideal but i thought it was definitely very interesting to chat about like how i mean like this is a sci-fi thing that we're experiencing in this game that really talks a lot about like human identity within transhumanism like chiaki is not a real person but yeah it's just it's neat because you know as a player we want chiaki to be real we want her to be human but she is like in i she's not real she is an ai she is not a real person and so but because our as players when we're playing with her we feel her emotions we feel her feelings toward Hajime and Hajime's feelings toward her does that make her human because we treat her like she is before we know that she's not when you find out your girlfriend is an NPC (laughs) I mean that that hurt it (laughs) anyway Um, yeah yeah I that is everything that you just said Caroline just it's so fascinating I mean it's like really interesting stuff I um personally for like like sociological reasons I don't support the transhumanism movement that's just my personal opinion but it is interesting to consider that possibility of like comparing the supercomputer with the human brain because um if you were to I mean currently as we where we're at in society we have we do not have a computer that even compares to the human brain at all right now but let's say theoretically in the future we could you know would that be equal I'm personally not sure like part of me wants to say oh no like the human brain is a product of biology and evolution and all these things not 
technology, which is very different. But if you were able to make an exact copy of all the synapses and neural networks and how those all work, like theoretically, it'd be the same, right? And it's just interesting to me because there's a lot of debate about like where psychology and neuroscience starts to blend with philosophy a little bit about like the origin of consciousness and like what makes us conscious because theoretically you could have someone whose brain functions just fine and they look and act and talk like a normal person um, but maybe there's nothing actually in there and that I, I think some places some people have called that uh, a philosophical zombie like that concept of like a person who you couldn't tell if they were actually like not conscious but they seem like it's very weird and abstract but there's a lot of debate about whether consciousness is like something specific that comes out of our brains or whether consciousness is a byproduct of all the other things that are going on in our brains and i think if um if it is something that can be broken down by neuroscience someday for people to be able to be like this is what makes consciousness then we could create artificial intelligence that are self-aware and sentient and feel things and think things and have like I don't want to say souls because that gets into religious territory and I know I don't want to like impinge on any of those beliefs we're going to talk about souls Maddie (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of the idea of like does a person have a soul or not where does that come from I think the term soul is inherently religious. I don't think there's a physical soul that you can throw in a robot. <laughs> throw. Wow. Right, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, like, consciousness. I think you could animate a robot. Um, I think you can't. If you if you are saying, can you, like, make a soul-like thing and put it in a robot, I would say that is probably playing God to um, people who are religious, you know? So, like, it is. yeah. It is, yeah. I, yeah, it's a very interesting debate i would suggest to you two and all of our listeners please i know i've said this before watch the show westworld it is literally this it is people who do horrible things to robots who are literally the closest thing to humans you can find and there there are times where you you feel worse for the robots gonna be real like it's it's very hard to watch and why why is it hard to watch you can argue that it's hard to watch people doing bad things to robots because you know like they're human or you could argue that it's a commentary on human nature and you know maybe you're just sad because you're not liking what you're seeing in yourself and so yeah it's it's a very interesting interesting debate the tough thing is that we don't know we don't know by asking for sure if a robot is conscious and can uh, and can feel things and like has a perspective because the the best functioning robot will just answer as if they do but it's not necessarily proof that they do and that gets into the weird territory of like what if everyone around me isn't actually in there and just pretends that they are what if you're not actually in there <gasps> well see here's the thing i know that i am but you, but don't. you don't you think that you are but what if you've been programmed to think that you know well no no because i i like know that i am here and real like i'm seeing through my eyes i'm hearing like i'm i'm talking to you i have feelings but that's exactly what i would say if i was a robot it's mm-hmm. probably what you'd feel if you were a robot too guys <laughs> <laughs> guys <laughs> let's let's move on wait i actually had a note though about the theory that we all live in a computer simulation that theory 
messes me up a little. I don't really think I believe in it personally, but a lot of scientists apparently do. Yeah, I've heard it's like I more likely that to. it is a simulation than not. I don't know the math behind it, but like someone, I heard that one time and I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, that I think comes from the idea that if humanity progresses to a point where they can create simulations that are actual worlds and like with sentient people, they could theoretically create millions of those worlds. And if there was millions of virtual worlds and only one real world, the odds are that we are in the virtual one. Hmm. Okay, we need. I need this to stop. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to have a crisis. Please stop. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. So my, okay, we'll move on. We'll move on. My next note is about personally my favorite Monokuma theater of all time. I oh my god, loved it. I I can't really explain why. I mean, I think it was just the text. I'd actually like to propose. Did you enjoy the Killing School trip <laughs> as our title with all the messed up school language? Trip. Can I just say <laughs> when I streamed this, I I like read that uh, out loud. <laughs> yeah and it was such a meme and someone in the chat was like i had never bothered to read this so thank you for reading it out loud um the large floating box in the classroom had your hero in it um which was pretty cool <laughs> missed that little dude it did <laughs> yep my last note it's just about an interesting moment um, right after Hajime reads the thing about the virtual world and kind of makes that connection that he might be in the simulation, um, he describes it as if like the world around him suddenly goes black and he feels like he's floating. And I just thought that was so interesting because it's like, it, it, I'm gonna, we're, we'll, we can get into this later, fascinating stuff, or we can get into it now about um, that Sonia brings up about the placebo effect and the nocebo effect. I love my girl. She knows psychology. Um, but it Can is... Remind me. Oh, 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 that's when you, if you die in the virtual world and you believe it's true. That Got it. Never mind. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Got it. Um, but it's, it's interesting when Hajime learns that and then stuff around him starts going black because it's like the illusion has been shattered. If it's, if the reality, the realisticness of the virtual world around him relies on him believing that it's real all of a sudden he doesn't believe it's real anymore and it starts to disappear because he can't sustain the illusion and I just thought that was that was very interesting and like after that moment when he goes back into the hallway it doesn't look like a hallway anymore it's like a matrix with numbers so it's literally the 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 illusion has been broken um and it reminds me a little bit of hypnosis which is like it plays on the power of suggestion it's like if you believe that it will work on you, it will. And if you don't, then it won't. It's like, it's a hundred percent like what your beliefs and expectations are and your brain makes them, your mind makes them real for you. That's also, it's super interesting because people who don't believe in uh, hypnosis, they don't believe it's real. They will never be hypnotized because they can't allow mm -hmm. themselves to be hypnotized. It's hmm. very interesting. Right. So in, I guess like in conversation with that, um, Fihiko references um, a blood dripping experiment in the That's game. Sonia. Oh, so I thought it was yes. Fihiko. Yes. Well, I did some research. <laughs> <laughs> a little, and um, I found two different like historical iterations of this occurring. One is in India, and one is in France. So the French one technically came first, 
because it was in the mid 1800s under Napoleon III, who is not as exciting as Napoleon Bonaparte, but you know, that's always up for debate. But in both instances, and the other was in India in 1936. Um, but in both instances, a very similar occurrence happened where the, the person, it, it, both were criminals and they were sentenced to death um, in both of the instance, instances. And in both of them, they like scratched like a little, one was on the neck and then I think the other experiment, it was on all the extremities, like a little, just like a little, like, like a little scratch, no blood, just like a little scratch and played the sound of dripping water over and over again. And in both instances, the people died within 10 minutes. That's crazy. Yeah. That, isn't that wild? That blew my mind because I also went and looked that up because I was like, is this real? And I found out it was real. And uh, yeah, I, I, that blew my mind. And it, it just goes to say like, you can die of fear basically, I think is kind of what it would come down to. And Marin from nurse, from a nursing perspective might be able to comment on this as well. But like, there were some moments when Sonia and Monokuma, I think we're going back and forth about like the power of the placebo effect and the nocebo effect. And if you believe in something, it becomes real. And most of what I was hearing, I was like, yeah, yeah, like that's so valid. I mean, the placebo effect is so well documented in psychology and medicine in so many ways. But then there's like one moment when Monokuma was like, if you're hypnotized into thinking you've been burned, a burn mark will appear. And I was like, no, <laughs> that one, I don't think that's true. Um, but the the thing about the experiment being real, just like, wow. Yeah, I, I've definitely seen it in action. Um, and not even as simple as like a medication working or, you know, like, I don't know about the burn mark. Maybe you'd get like a little bit more scar tissue somewhere. I, I would have to do research. I don't know anything about that. But um, just the simple ideology of like if you get a very like sudden and and um sad diagnosis and you have a very positive outlook it, i believe it has been shown that you have much better outcomes than people who are like i'm not going to make it like this is going to get me like you know and so it, th your your brain is very powerful y you know like you have to kind of go into things with a positive outlook or it can actually physically hurt you um it's crazy yeah on this note, so there is a um, two things a a acting trainings. So what here we go. Um, so there is a technique in acting called psychological gesture, where you make a gesture. It could be as abstract or literal as you want. That basically embodies what your character is trying to do in a scene. So in sometimes when you're breaking down scenes, like a lot of the time you shouldn't play emotions. Like you shouldn't be like, I am going to be sad in this scene. You should play an action toward the other character. So an action could be like, I'm going to poke you. That is an action. And I'm going to poke you throughout the scene to get what I want. Like what my character wants, like if I'm playing an annoying character. And so a psychological gesture for like to poke might be like, or it might be a different essence. I, you can't see what I'm doing. I just realized this is a podcast. Um, okay, but so you can do multiple things for psychological gesture and poke can have a different essence. It could be like rapid movements or it could be a very slow prodding poke. But psychological gesture is supposed to be a physical way to get your mind to act a certain way in the scene. Like that is what that's for. And similarly, there is another uh, thing in acting called like, I don't really know what the name of it's for. I think it's like imbuing essence into a thing. So like on stage, you are never smoking a real cigarette ever. That's a fire hazard. But if your character is smoking or drinking alcohol, 
or whatever. And like when I've drank an alcohol in scenes, like you feel the burn, like you have to like imbue that with the essence of the thing to feel the feeling that your character is feeling when drinking the alcohol. Like if you take a big swig, you like will choke because even though it's just water, you're in the scene and your brain thinks this is alcohol. It's wild. Anyway, acting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I love that. That's so cool. And I think it connects really well to, if I can throw in another little tidbit about um, a very interesting psychological experiment um, <laughs> that is, it actually, the way I learned about it was through um, Vsauce, which if any of y'all know Vsauce, he did this, um, the dude's name is Michael. He's Michael from Vsauce. And he made this show called Mindfield. And he would do like psychological things on it. And one of the episodes was investigating the nocebo effect. And so like the, the way that they kind of explained it is like the placebo effect is like relieving pain. And then the nocebo effect is like inducing pain, even when something's not actually hurting you. And what they did is they had this experiment where they told people that they, they had this little like light that they were shining on people's arms and they told people that it was like this bone density scan that could be really, really painful and they might feel some burning or like tingling or whatever, but it was, it, it was nothing. It was just like a flashlight. It was like nothing. But like a lot of people, like half the participants in this experiment had this light shining on them and they started like crying because they said it hurt so bad. And it's just like, it just goes to show, I mean, like, yes, the, the brain is, is powerful. Are you interested in hearing more from the Ultra Hope Girls about Danganronpa 2? Become a patron today for as little as $2 a month to get access to videos from the Ultimate Nurse, Ultimate Psychologist, and Ultimate Literary Girl. You'll also have a chance to become part of our Discord and participate in the Ultimate Literary Girls book club. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Amino, Twitch, and just about everywhere. We are Ultra Hope Girls podcast, and we can't wait to hear from you. If you have any questions that you want to be featured in our end of season, and wrap up make sure you get your questions in on anchor.fm we can't wait to hear from you and you'll have the chance to be featured in that season finale we'll see you after the break hello everybody caroline here with a pretty exciting announcement so I, separate from the other Ultra Hope girls, am offering some online virtual classes in things such as writing, because, you know, I'm the ultimate literary girl, and performing, and also some clubs and classes virtually via my own school, which I founded, called The Spilling Ink School. You can check that out at thespillinginkschool.com. I'm offering tutoring and college essays. I'm offering, you know, piano classes and all that jazz. So definitely check it out. It's a good time. And I will also be offering some clubs and classes that are Danganronpa related via OutSchool. So I'll keep the links all in the description. They are for people under 18, so ask your parents before checking it out. But yeah, I'm excited to potentially have some listeners in my classes, and I wanted to let you know that that's going on. So thanks so much in advance for checking it out, and I look forward to teaching some of you. I have a discussion question about um, finding out where ultimate, like, part of the remnants of despair. So in Buffy... There's a character named Angel who is a vampire who has a soul, classic. And when you have a soul in this universe, it's basically a conscience for your actions. 
but before he had a soul, he didn't have a soul. Like he, he was soulless. And so he like killed people. He tortured people. He did all these terrible things because he was a vampire and he like did all the, the stupid stuff. He killed his own family, like crazy, crazy stuff. But then as punishment, he was given a soul and because it would torture him because he knew everything that he had done wrong because he morally knew that what he did was wrong. And so this is sort of similar, right, to, to these kids here. When they wake up, they are going to wake up knowing the things that they did wrong after being brainwashed. Kind of a similar dynamic there. And so I guess my question, based on this connection of these two things, is like, since ultimate despair, like the remnants of despair, perform these acts while brainwashed, will there be some who are awoken who can't stand the thought of themselves after knowing what they have done? Like, will some of them, like be tortured into like like living on the streets and like going nuts because they can't like comprehend the things that they've done and also are these brainwashed people responsible for the acts of their previous self or or not which i think i think there isn't a black and white answer there i think it's very much a gray area because there doesn't have to be a yes or no so i think in terms of will they wake up and, you know, be unable to deal with themselves? I don't know if we can really answer that because I think every person is very different. Um, I think that their choice to not allow Junko back into the real world at the end would be a little bit healing in the soul in my eyes um, because like, you know, like their past selves would have allowed her back in in a heartbeat. And for them, they took the time and considered it and then said no, you know, so in that sense, I I don't know, I think it's person to person. And then for, are they morally held accountable? Here comes Moral Compass Marin. Um, I don't know, again, because I brainwash is such a vague term. Is it brainwash that Junko said, hey, guys, let's go kill people. And they were like, okay, and then did it? Because, yes, then, you know, she's popular. Maybe they're like, we want to be cool. Let's go kill people with Junko, you know? (laughs) But if it's brainwashed in a sense of, like, they actually could not control the fact that they were led into doing that, then I would say no. They don't have a you know, as much at least of a, you know, moral responsibility there. Yeah, I'm really not sure, man. There have been, like, cases in the past where, like, someone on trial for a crime or something will try to claim that they were, like, hypnotized into doing something. Um, that defense usually does not stand up very well. <laughs> uh, doesn't doesn't usually work out that well. Um because, well, I, like I mentioned about hypnosis before, hypnosis is not mind control. It is not what half the world thinks it is. It, it really is not um, at all. But when it comes to like brainwashing, it's, it's bad stuff. But I really don't know. I don't know either. However, whether or not they're responsible, society, those viewing them, have seen them do the things, the wrong things they did before they went through this ther- this therapy or, you know, the, the computer program. Um, and so their future is still going to be ch- tough. And they acknowledge this because they are going to have to prove to everyone else that they have changed. So in a way, it's like society doesn't view them as different or res- they view them as responsible no matter what is going on in here. Um, and so because of that, like, they have to push forward and acknowledge their, like, they can't ignore what that person did. It's like taking responsibility for, like, your, like, p- partner in crime, like, did, like, you know, if, like, 
yeah you know what i mean like if some your friend did something bad okay you know what i'm talking about (laughs) (laughs) i also interpreted the way i interpreted it like how they were explaining like what would happen when they woke up and like went back to their despair selves the way i understood it too was that they would like they would take on the despair again and the desire for the despair like they wouldn't necessarily just be like good again but then they have to deal with the guilt of everything they've done like the way I interpreted it was that they would come back to being the embodiments of despair and for me like that was worse because I think that the worst case scenario is like waking up to be that person who like you have a conscience and you know everything that you've did you've done wrong and there's a part of you that is lucid and like doesn't want that anymore but there's still part of you that is evil like i to me that's like the worst combination that's like the most (laughs) the most despair no but um that is kind of the way that i saw it like it wasn't just a question of guilt for me yeah we see a change at the very end of the game with them so i definitely think it's not them going back to the exact same person they were before they started the therapy like we know that for a fact um you know hajime is standing at the dock and he says i'm hajime like that and he cuts his hair and he cuts his hair yeah (laughs) yeah i know i was like where'd you get the scissors bro true uh yeah so on the topic of them finding out that they are really really evil after I wrote when you're when you find out your girlfriend is an NPC I wrote when you find out you and all your friends are super evil (laughs) 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 but like if someone came up to you and said like yeah you're really evil would you believe it they're like you killed your family you killed your friends you cut off your arm and you sewed on this other woman's arm like would you believe that I personally would have such a hard time being like okay I guess I'll delete my personality because you said I'm evil. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, they're thrown into a situation where they don't really know what to believe. And I think yeah. with both Makoto and Monokuma telling, and sorry, Junko at this point, sorry, Junko telling them both, like both of them saying like, yeah, this is who you were. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think it makes sense. It's just chaos. The whole like, do we believe Junko? Do we believe Makoto who we've never met? Do we believe, well, we also, we've also never met Junko, but now she is, like, evil, but, like, Makoto is from the Future Foundation, who we thought was evil. Like, it's just, like, how would you know what to believe? <laughs> yeah. I, I feel bad for them and Hajime. Like, that's just, like, horrible. <laughs> like, there's a big theme of, like, enemies and who can you believe, and, like, they have never met Makoto before. They've never met Junko, you know, like they, they don't know these people. So I'm curious as to why they weren't like, I guess Hajime did actually go with exactly what I'm about to say, but I'm curious why they didn't say no to both of them. Like Hajime at that one point says like, nope, I'm not deciding. Like, sorry guys. And I get that because like these two strangers who you have, they, they've never proved anything to you about being valid they've they made some emails appear in midair like that's it the next note that i have goes off of that idea of hajime getting erased um to me this this whole thing was heartbreaking like watching him grapple with the idea that in order to prevent junko from escaping into the world and literally like ending mankind that hajime might have to delete himself literally not necessarily die, 
but wake up as a completely different person. And this reminded me of a moment in Doctor Who, actually, um, and Caroline and Marin probably know this, but for all of our listeners, I love Doctor Who. I don't really watch it anymore, like the most recent stuff, but like um, the era of like David Tennant, Matt Smith, love, love Doctor Who. I was always a big Whovian. And this is a spoiler for Doctor Who, but this show, the, the season that I'm talking about has been out for over 10 years. So I'm just going to go for it. When Hajime is like, I don't want to, I don't want to delete myself. I don't want to wake up as Izuro. It reminded me of the death of the 10th Doctor, who was played by David Tennant. Because there is, so like the, the, um, the context behind that is that the, the Doctor is a Time Lord. And he lives a very long time. He's like a thousand years old. And he dies, but then he regenerates into a new person. So like it was David Tennant and then David Tennant, the 10th doctor died and became the 11th doctor who was Matt Smith. Different personality, different appearance, same memories, but like in all the other regards, a different person. There's a quote that, so at one point the 10th doctor like knows that he's going to die and he has a quote about like how it feels to, how he doesn't want to die and how it feels to regenerate into another like iteration of himself. And he says, even if I change, it feels like dying. Everything I am dies. Some new man goes sauntering away and I'm dead. And that, that, that scene hits me right in the heart. It's like, oof, okay, emotions. But um, it, that reminded me of Hajime's situation because he's like, that's like death for Hajime. He, everything he is dies and he becomes Izuru and it's not what he wants. And that broke my heart, broke my heart just a little bit. I have a Buffy reference. Yes, go for it. <laughs> relating to this, but also relating to what Sonia brings up later where it's like, if like this world is deleted, did it ever happen? Does this matter? What matters if this world is deleted? And this all wraps up in this. So I also, so, okay. This is from the Buffy episode, season two, episode seven called Lie to Me. Um, it's a one-off episode. So Maddie, again, this is a very small spoiler of the entire series. So like, I please like, yeah, very small Buffy spoiler. So essentially in this episode, Buffy's old friend from her past high school comes and he basically you find out like he wants to become a vampire because he either becomes a vampire or he dies of cancer. And there is a quote that Buffy says through tears. It just makes my heart sad. It's you have a choice. You don't have a good choice, but you have a choice. And this is like literally this chapter in a bow is that quote. But something that the YouTuber Passion of the Nerd brings up in the conversation about this episode, and he is a fantastic, fantastic YouTuber. His name is Ian. If you love Buffy, please check out his videos. A lot of these ideas I'm talking about come from him, and um, I just want to give him full credit because I wouldn't have thought of this on my own, honestly. But there's a lot to talk about with this and also existentialist philosophy, which in very boiled down terms is like, the universe is indifferent to you and there's no fine line or goal. Nothing we do matters is basically that, which means in a positive light, we are able to create our own meaning through our choices um, and the power. And we have power to live meaningful lives and that is our power. Right. And so if you assume you never have a choice or get overwhelmed by the choices in front of you, like Hajime does, you're an object of your own circumstance. Your existence means nothing. So he has to make a choice, even though both choices suck. So 
I'm about to share a very long-winded quote, but please bear with me because it really, it really resonated with me. Um, it's uh, from Stanley uh, Kubrick, who is the director for The Shining and Clockwork Orange, and he is an existentialist. Um, and he was asked in an interview from brainpicking.org what he thought of life and if life was purposeless and not worth living. And this is what he said. And this is, again, Ian said this in his video and I was watching it and I was like, this is, we got to include this in this episode about Naganropa. This is long, but it's good. <laughs> Hold on to your hats, children. All right. The very meaninglessness of life forces man to create his own meaning. Children, of course, begin life with an untarnished sense of wonder, a capacity to experience total joy at something as simple as the greenness of a leaf. But as they grow older, the awareness of death and decay begins to impinge on their consciousness and subtly erode their idealism and their assumption of, uh, of immortality. As a child matures, he sees death and pain everywhere about him and begins to lose faith in the ultimate goodness of man. But if he's reasonably strong and lucky, he can emerge from this twilight of the soul into a rebirth of a man of life's Elon, both because of and in spite of his awareness of the meaninglessness of life, he can forge a fresh sense of purpose and affirmation. He may not recapture the same pure sense of wonder he was born with, but he can shape something far more enduring and sustaining. The most terrifying fact about the universe is not that it is hostile, but that it is indifferent. But if we can come to terms with this indifference and accept the challenges of life within the boundaries of death, However mutable man may be able to make them, our existence as a species can have genuine meaning and fulfillment. However vast the darkness, we must supply our own light. And I, I was like, <laughs> you were like, cry, cry, because Hajime, by making the choice to make a choice and make his own future, is creating meaning to this world that will obliterate into nothing. So does it what ma what happened in this game matter if it doesn't affect the real world? I think yes. In the grand scheme of things, it mattered to those people in that period of time, and they made meaning out of the darkness. And so, anyway, yeah, yeah. Kind of going off of that, like this is a good time to talk about why I love Chiaki so much. She to me embodies exactly what you were just talking about, Caroline. Like she, she's not real. She's not a real person, and she gives up everything, you know, to help these people succeed, knowing that she will not make it out of this game, right? And so there's just something so tragically beautiful about how, like, she's willing to end her existence without needing credit for what she's done. I think one of the most common fears, um, especially in our generation, is um, being forgotten, dying and being forgotten. And this a whole game, this chapter to me kind of takes away from that fear because Chiaki is not remembered, but she did change all of them. Without Chiaki, they would all have either stayed in the game or, you know, like they might have come out into the world as the only the remnants of despair, you know, but she changed them even without getting the credit for it. And I, that is... Uh, like something that I've kept with me since ending this game is that it doesn't matter who sees what you're doing. It's affecting the world. Everything you do affects the world and you don't need credit for it to be real and for it to be meaningful. Oh God. Amen. Like our society wants that fame and wants recognition, but sometimes it's 
you don't, that's not what life is about. And that's not what it should be about. That's a really powerful message. And I can't agree more. And um, Marin, this ending of this game also holds a very special place in my heart because of that message, because of just like the, the idea that like, even if you do something small, or even if you do something nice for someone that they don't remember, maybe it still matters that you did it. You know, I also, what resonated with me a lot was her message about like shaping your own future and like taking charge of that because I've seen some criticisms of the end of this game where it's like oh it's just like a deus ex machina ending like it's literally like they have this difficult choice between these two things and then they're like never mind we don't have to choose everything's fine we're gonna do it ourselves but I don't really agree with that criticism because I think the way that they ended this by saying no 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 we're not gonna choose between a and b we're gonna make a new option. We're going to make our own future. We're going to shape it in a way that we want instead of just playing your game and choosing between these two things. I like that better because I think it it is like a message for life and it's a good takeaway because it's like rarely in life will you ever find yourself in a situation where you don't have any other options. You know, most of the time if you think outside the box a little bit, you can you'll find that you that you have a choice, you know what I mean? And it's not that they didn't have a choice, like they had a choice between these two things. But, um, you know, if you feel boxed in by something like that, more often than not, if you give it a little thought, you'll find out that you can figure something else out. Like there's there's another there's another way. And I have to say, like, the, the ending of this game gets me very emoshi, as you all know. Um, but I... Well, I will say, like, after finishing this game, I had a little bit, like, the first time, not this time, but, like, the the first time I played this game, I had a little bit of, like, post-game depression going on. Like, not in a bad way. Like, I loved the game. It was, like, and not just, like, being sad that it was over. It was just, like, I needed to process it. Like, I took some time to, like, actually really process the ending of this game and all the messages from it. I, not to be cheesy and throw the jokes in there, but after that, like, I found this renewed sense of, like, hope for my life. Not just hope, but courage, too, because, you know, hope sometimes I feel like has a connotation of just, like, expecting that everything's going to be fine. Like, don't worry about it. Just be hopeful. Versus, like, courage, which is, like, you rising to the occasion and, you know, doing something about your circumstances and not just hoping that good things will happen to you but making good things happen. And that's kind of a philosophy that I've tried to take with me. Because without believing in the future, there is nothing. Life, life is meaningless. <laughs> There's nothing. So, okay, one last note. This is actually, I think, my last note. Just uh, something I wanted to share. <laughs> um, so in the scene with Hajime and Chiaki, when Hajime is like worried, he's like, but like Chiaki, if we wake up and don't remember you and you get deleted, like, It'll be like you never existed. Like, you know, I don't want you to disappear. And Chiaki says, like, just because, you know, even if you don't remember me, even if I get deleted, I'm not going to disappear. I'm still, it still, like, matters that I was here. It reminded me of a dream that I had when I was, like, eight. And I'm going <laughs> to... This is a very... come to, I'm sorry. I know. Great okay. <laughs> No, this is a story that I have to share y'all because it messes me up a little bit and I still think about it sometimes. But here goes. 
So I had this dream when I was like eight years old. At around that age, I had imaginary friends, as one does when you're eight. Or maybe I was just like a lonely, sad eight-year-old. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I think that's pretty normal. But um, I had this dream one time that involved one of my imaginary friends. We were at like a water park or something. I don't even remember. And I don't remember like the gender, the name, the appearance, anything about this imaginary friend person. But at one point we were hanging out, we were chilling. And this dream person turns to me and says, please don't wake up. I don't want you to wake up from this dream and forget me because then I will disappear and I won't be real anymore. My eight-year-old brain does not know how to process that. I, like, that just messes me up so much. Like, I know that that was, like, just my imagination, like, doing weird things. But, like, that's just, <laughs> Caroline's laughing at me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just, I'm thinking about it objectively, like, ah, uh, yes, this analysis of this chapter. So, guys, let me just tell you about this dream I had when I was <laughs> Like, it's not that your dream doesn't relate, because it totally does. It's it's just me looking at it from, like... <laughs> um, I just felt like I had to share that, because it was just so, like... It's very sad, yeah. I, it, is. it was. I was, like... Uh, I think I woke up, like, crying, and I ran to my mom, and I was like, Mom, like, I killed my imaginary friend <laughs> by waking up! Like, it was just... Oh, man. Yeah, that messes with me a little bit. But it is, it is sweet, I think, the scene between Hajime and Chiaki when she starts to say, um, she starts to say something along the lines of like, you guys aren't in the game, right? Like, you should be able to create your own future. Like, if you just do it, it'll be okay. And in that moment, I kind of got the sense that she was talking to us as like the player and not necessarily right to Chiaki, uh, right to Hajime because it was like, you guys aren't in the game the one playing this you're not in a video game you have endless possibilities awaiting you and um like remember that and, like go out and create your own future and I just I was really touched by that then the last thing I wanted to say is the moment one of my favorite moments in this entire trial is the after Junko's panic talk action when Hajime gives his final no that's wrong Chiaki does it with him and I just loved that so much and I feel like Chiaki is like a not to get religious again but like a guardian angel kind of figure throughout the end of this game for Hajime and it's just really it pulls at my heartstrings yeah of all the games that have like affected how I view the world and like how like uh creating a direction of how to like take your future this one um really takes the game yeah really hit home for sure so okay not to like totally in this on a negative note but um i just want to do i do want to bring up this and this is sort of a question i want to chat about the ending of this game is a sort of common thing that happens with danganronpa games where it's like a three-hour plot dump and it's just the person taught like junko chatting at us about what is happening and it almost ruined the ending for me like i the part with chiaki is like prime prime i'm so glad it happens right at the end and we don't get a lot of junko stuff after because god i would die but like there's a conversation in like artistic analysis of form and content and like the medium of the message that we're receiving so like for example there are some stories that are told through like the the perspective of cvs receipts and that tells a different story than if you were to just write it out 
on paper like a story, like a like a normal short story. You know, that gives a different, the medium is different. So the message is communicated in a different way. So I was curious, art school class discussion here, what would be a form or a medium that would have worked better to elicit the information so we w- could have avoided this plot dump at the very end of the game? That is a good question. I hear you about the plot dumping it thing. Is, I do hear you. It is bad. And this one is really bad. And I don't know if I just noticed it more because I had to like sit through it on a stream and like hear every word that was said and just be like, oh my God, this is awful. Except the end with Jackie is the best part. So personally, I wouldn't say it's bad. I would say it's extreme. Um, And there is a difference in that I didn't think it was poorly executed. Like I think it is very long for sure but like that's actually part of one of the things that I like about Danganronpa I think playing through the game a second time it's going to be hard or a third a fourth anytime beyond the first it's hard to get through because you know what's coming and so nothing that they're saying after you play it through the first time is a surprise however the first time you play through the game you don't know what's going on. It's like creating a timeline for you. And then at some point in this big world creation type section, you start to think like, oh, like these mysteries kind of are lining up and then they get to the grand reveal. And it's like, if you didn't have that big dump of information, if they didn't tell you about the reserve course and the research and, you know, like, how the tragedy was caused by one person and like the the all the stuff about the mass suicide to make the tragedy real like I don't think it would have the same effect which I guess I I know your question was like how could they have done it differently not how could they have not presented the information at all so like right but I I personally didn't think it was that bad yeah I don't know I yeah I guess that's my take Fair. And I do want to respond to that because I have a very different view. Like when I played through it the first time, and I, I don't know if this is because I, I have ADHD. I've probably said it a million times in the podcast, but I had a really hard time staying focused and understanding what was going on, like mm. what they were talking about. Like my mom, it was like, I was so bored because it was just words at me all at Jugo's voice. And I couldn't like comprehend what was happening. And it was only until like, I looked at external resources that I completely understood what was happening with everything. Um, And so I I asked this question because as a player, I had a tough time following what was going on. And so I'm wondering if like maybe a solution could have been like, there were seven chapters and we found found out half of this information in chapter six and the other half in chapter seven in a way that was like a little more well thought out and able to be explained rather than just through text on the page. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Because I hear you. I think it is definitely a lot of info dumping. But I also, I kind of agree with Marin in that it didn't bother me that much. Like, I didn't think it was really bad. And I have a, like, I I don't know if I can really speak to how I experienced it the first time I played it because I hadn't played the first game. And so I think that that affects things too. I think if you have the context of the first game, a lot of the info dumping that happens in this chapter is kind of summary of the events of the first game, which is kind of like, okay, we, we know what happened there. And then the real plot twists happen, like with the, them being ultimate despair and like Hajime being Izuro Kamakura. Um, Those plot twists still worked on me. I was still like, wow, like this is wild. Even though I hadn't played Trigger Happy Havoc. (laughs) Because they give you enough, they give you enough context to be like, 
to still be able to play the game. Um, but I hear you on like the medium and the, the way that it's communicated, like and doing it in some way rather than just like text and you're just reading through everything that happens. Right. Like I, I like the twists. I like right. every, like I, they shocked me. I'm with you. I agree. Like a hundred percent. But I yeah. think at least, I think my point more is like, there is a better way that this probably could have been communicated that would have maybe helped people like me who have a harder time with an info dump like this. I think the trouble that maybe they found, like if they were thinking along the same lines as you, is that they can't, so they, they made Junko have 10 different personalities and she used one about every two lines. And I think that was probably their way of mixing it up because this is a closed scenario. The first game, closed. You can't get out there. You can't bring new people in to try and make it more interesting. You can't like, you know, in the first game, you can't bring in manga books that are like scattered around and like, you know. So I, I think they probably struggled on how to make it more interesting or how to bring that information in and scatter it about while still like, you know, do you, does, you know what I mean by that? Yeah. I wonder if it would have been interesting if they had made an actual, like a few manga pages of like the events of yeah. the stuff that they had in the books because it was just like, oh, look at this book cover. And then you're just reading text. True. And That's what if they made actual like manga of or it? Or if you had to make the manga, like, you know how we make yeah, comic like books puzzle. the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> See, that yeah. was more my question is like, what was a, what are some ideas of ways that like, yeah, wait, because we didn't do that this trial, did we? No. And, and huh. with literal comic books are like part of the investigation. Like guys, that was a missed opportunity. Yeah, missed opportunity. that is a missed opportunity. I agree with that. Wow. Yeah. They should have had a mini game at those targets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Overall though. Good ending, good. Yeah, overall, this game is my favorite. I like it better than the first game. It just had more of an emotional impact on me, and I think it was more interesting. That's just my two cents, but this game holds a very, very special place in my heart, and it will for the rest of my life. I'm going to be like a 90-year-old weeb in a retirement <laughs> community. We're old in nursing home. We're going to be like, we were once on a dark <laughs> You remember, you remember Gundam Tanaka. Loved that little man. Just kind of talking about the end where, you, you know, like Makoto, Byakuya, Kyoko all leave and leave Hajime on the island with all his buddies, um, most of them not uh, awake. They are alive technically, but, you know, um, yeah, it was just kind of an interesting end. I liked that they kept it kind of realistic. Like Kyoko says, hey, it's they're probably not gonna wake up though and makoto's like yeah but they have hope they he says miracles are inevitable for those who create their own future and it kind of reminded me of in the nagito character analysis uh, episode that we did where we talked about how people who believe they have good luck end up having good things happen to them because of how they view life and so that that's kind of what i got from that is just their belief that maybe something good can happen um could help them in the future i will also say caroline i know you love him to death um maybe not but when makoto <laughs> appeared like this time around when i was playing this game when Makoto appeared, I actually cheered. I was like, yeah, Makoto! <laughs> I feel like Caroline probably vomited when she saw him appear. Um, I was actually, like, kind of pumped. I was like, oh my god, he's back. Like, he's gonna save the day. Like, it was the cheesiest reaction that I had, but I was like, 
I was like, I actually feel like I've liked, I like Makoto in this moment now more than I ever did. In so I'll have game. you know that when I streamed this game, the chat was ruthless to me about my waifu. And I was oh like, <laughs> they were like, oh, look, it's Caroline's waifu. Aww. And they gave, what's my ship name? Macaline. <laughs> so please, I'm screaming. Anyway. But that was me when Biakia showed up and Jason had all those lines and I was like, ooh. Your beauty is beyond compare With golden locks and skin so fair Ooh, Biakuya Togami Biakuya Togami When when Kyoko, my girl, walked in, I was so excited. Love her. So, all right. I had this note in chapter one of this season. And Maddie and Mary were like, Caroline, that is a freaking spoiler, bro. And you'll understand why in a second. So um, the Jabberwocky is a Lewis Carroll poem that is featured in Through the Looking Glass. And the poem is featured in a part of the novel where Alice is realizing that she's experiencing a mirror reality because the words are written backwards on the page and she has to hold it up to a mirror to read it. This is literally the mirror reality that the kids are experiencing in this virtual world. And I love that just the name of the island they lived on, it it represents that itself. It's wild. All right. So for today, for Bed, Wed, Behead, we are going to be going through the survivors, just the guys this time. So we have Kazuichi, we have Hajime slash Izaru, and Fuyuhiko. I know my answer. If you know, I can go first, this actually isn't that hard for me. Go ahead, buddy. Um, I would behead Kazuichi. Sorry, buddy. Um, I would bed Hajime slash Izaru his like hybrid self. I, I don't know. Either one of them that works. Um, and then I would wed Fuyuhiko. Um, Fuyuhiko is my fave out of all of those, but Hajime is attractive. So like there is that. I have the same answer. I think I've wed Ooh. Fuyuhiko in every option I've had to wed Fuyuhiko. So no one made comments about my waifu from game two when i screamed and i'm sad about it because your ultimate match is makoto <laughs> stop <laughs> <laughs> um for me i would uh behead kazuichi wed hajime slash izuru and bed um Fuhiko. yeah probably not a surprise nice. either, but yeah nice. all right so for our final bed 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 we are going to be doing the lady survivors plus chiaki because she survives in our hearts um so we have sonia akane and chiaki oh this is hard actually it is i have my answer this is hard go for it so i know what you're gonna do Marin is looking at me like i'm about to slaughter her lover i know i know ex- i think i know exactly what do. um i would wed sonia because she is me but also like she's very different from me and i think we'd have we'd vibe well i would bed akane and i would be hit chiaki because i don't want to like bed chiaki really i mean like maybe but no <laughs> yeah i i would befriend chiaki yeah so that's my answer you all can hate me now i have the same answer as you caroline <laughs> so sorry Marin. 
I'm John so sorry. Death meant a lot to me. Yeah, okay. Kill her twice, why don't you? I love Chiaki. I'm sorry. Like, I love Chiaki so much, but I don't think I would want to bed her. I don't think I'd want to wed her. And I also, it's it's kind of one of those things where I feel like we got closure with her in a weird way that, like, I'd be most okay with that. But I don't want to. Don't, like, don't get me wrong. I love Chiaki. That would make me so sad. But I would wed Sonia. Um, she's my waifu. You know, it's it's set in stone. And then I'd bed Akane. And I, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I would wed Sonia. I would bed Chiaki. And I would behead Akane. Yep. Yeah, there we go. That, there we go. We we got one one life for Chiaki. Chiaki has one life left. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. That is a wrap for chapter six of Goodbye Despair. I cannot believe we are at the end of this season. It's so crazy. But I hope you all enjoyed. And if you want to hear a little bit more about our Goodbye Despair thoughts, if you want to hear any bonus episodes that we may have available about Goodbye Despair, you can check out our Patreon. The lowest tier is just $2 a month, and you get access to a bunch of really cool episodes, all themed after our ultimate talents, and some outliers in there. So you never know what you're going to get. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We're Ultra Hope Girls Podcast everywhere, so you can keep up with the latest and greatest of your, your faves. And if you have a question that you want featured in our season finale, definitely leave a voicemail at anchor.fm. We love hearing your voice messages and we love featuring you all in our finale episodes and getting to hear your voices. So definitely get those in before we film our season finale. And that's it for today, folks. Thank you all for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Bye.